You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we'll be paying attention this morning to verses 17 and 18 in this passage of Colossians 1. And we open this morning with a big claim. He is before all things. Jesus is before all things. And English is a tricky language, and so when we take that word before, we think we know what it means, but in English it can mean at least three things, maybe more things, because I'm not the best English speaker. But when I think of the word before, I think of the word before meaning like proceeding in time or in sequence, like breakfast comes before lunch. Or I think of it as being in the presence of something, like Pastor Adam is standing before the church today. Or I think of before as meaning like to be preferred above or ahead of something else, like you might want to pick Michael for your softball team before you pick Pastor Adam. Three different meanings for the same word, before. And the testimony of Scripture testifies pretty clearly that when we talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're talking about Him being before all things in all three manners of the word that Jesus is before all things, preceding them in time and sequence, that he is in the presence of all things, and that he is to be preferred above and magnified above all else. Now, the meaning in this passage is primarily dealing with Jesus being before all things in sequence, order, and magnitude. And this, in this way, we see Jesus as the Jesus from our sermon series through the Gospel of John, if you walked with that, where the opening of the Gospel writer says of Jesus in John 1, that in the beginning, the very beginning, was the Word, the Word, Jesus. That the Word was God, that the Word was with God, He was in the beginning with God, that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This Jesus is the Jesus who is before all things, the origin and the sustainer of all things, the maker of the universe. Jesus is before all things. It is the word that speaks, let there be light, and there is light. He's the one who creates with his speech. He is the origin, the seed of everything that you know. And he's not just the creator of all things, but he's also in the presence of all things. He is before his creation. He's been before us in really two ways, right? He comes to us, like in the Christmas story, where he comes down into the finite, where he becomes flesh and walks among us, where in the most intimate way, Jesus was before his creation. He touched his creation. He related with his creation. He made eye contact with his creation. He healed his creation. He died for his creation, but not just in the intimate way. He also, in the most infinite way, is ever before his creation as the omnipresent one, the one who has the the fullness of everything that he has made within his eyesight, in his infinite mind. He has taken account of every atom in the universe. This is our God who is before all things, And likewise, we see that in Jesus, he is to be preferred above all else, that he is to be preferred before all else, that he is the preeminent one, the king for whom and through whom all things have been made. He's the ends and not only the means. 
This morning, we are going to look at a Jesus who is before all things. And if we can get our mind on him in this space, if we can really lift our eyes and see the one who is before all things, then all the rest of the doctrine in this morning's passage is going to fall into place. We need to see a big Jesus who's right in front of you. A big Jesus who's right in front of you. See, what we can be inclined to think when we read the Christmas story and we read the story of baby Jesus coming into the world through Mary's womb and growing up and living a life of sinless righteousness, that somehow Jesus came onto the scene at his birth, that somehow Jesus starts in a manger. We don't see the eternal one, the beginningless one, the one who was there before all things entering into his creation. We see one who comes into being. And we think that he's got a start date, like you have a start date. And this wrecks a whole bunch of doctrine if we start to think about Jesus this way. Jesus is not like a repairman who was sent into the creation of God to fix some things. Jesus is the God who made all things, who enters himself into his creation. So I'll talk to you about that a little bit this morning. I was listening to Pastor Brett's sermon from last week. Incredible work, Pastor. And... Uh, he brought a sermon illustration into his preaching where he talked about uh, in any great enterprise or any great construction project that you've got an owner who's got the enterprise and it's in the heart of his mind, right? And he's, he's got this idea for what he wants to execute. He'll just make it a business, right? And so this business owner has a plan. He's got a vision and he wants, and he's, he says, I need a building in order to carry out this plan and this vision, this enterprise. And so I hire an architect and I share my vision for my enterprise to him and all that needs to happen there. And the architect then designs a layout and a building, a structure that will serve that purpose. And then once I put my stamp of approval on that, then we employ builders to come in and lay brick upon brick to execute the vision of the owner and the architect so that the enterprise can take place within those walls. And then I'll take that one further, and I'll say that it's then the owner's responsibility after the building is constructed, constructed to oversee its maintenance, if it needs repair, to make a determination. If something breaks, do I leave it broken, or do I, or do I fix it? And it's also the sole discretion of the owner to determine the duration of the use of what he has made, how it will be used, if he wants to change the way that it is used, all those types of things. Will he let it decay? Will he tear it down? Will he start anew? That ultimately Jesus is not a repairman who shows up on the scene to fix what another had made, but that he is both the owner of all things, the creator of all things, the builder, the architect of all things, and the repairman who comes into his own creation to fix what is broken and yet more. We're going to talk about the yet more as we go deeper into the passage. But if we see Jesus as showing up on the scene, and that's where he starts, we won't understand the arc of the narrative the way that Jesus would have us in this passage. Understand that we're talking about the owner, the builder, and architect are entering into his own creation. And so we move into that same sentence to, in him, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. When I was writing this sermon, after each time that Jesus or his pronoun is used, I put in parentheses, not you, to preach to myself. In Jesus, not you, all things hold together. In him, 
all, not you, was the beginning, the preeminent one, the one who is before all things. And I think that when I preached to you guys this morning that this one's going to be the one that lands the hardest because we're a controlling folk, aren't we? Do you tend to believe, like me, that it is in you that all things are holding together? That it is in you that the good plans and purposes of life and creation are riding? The claim here is that it's in Jesus that all things are holding together. And I want to hang out on all things because we're talking about the all things that we were just referring to back in the beginning where all things were made through and for and by him. So we're talking about all things, all things are holding together in Jesus Christ. We could venture off. I'd be leaving my area of expertise as if I had one. But I'd be, we could venture off into physics or biology. We could venture off into chemistry or ecology or astronomy or even the spiritual realm, and we'd still be within the bounds of all things, and that would be another thing that Jesus is sustaining. I could talk to you guys about the principle of the conservation of energy, talk to you guys about the idea that human beings can neither create nor destroy energy. All we can take is the energy that we've been given, and we can convert it from one form to another. I can't make more, and I can't get rid of it. All I can do is use it. What is that? Well, that's a Jesus who has designed things in such a way that he alone is going to sustain all things. You can't add energy to this thing. Well, okay, Adam, why are you getting into that space? Well, you know, because I was thinking about, I, I won't bore you guys with it, but I've been working on a book that I might never finish. And in it, I've been trying to think about how was the original creation, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, different from the world we enjoy today, and how, is, how are those two worlds different from the new earth, the one that we look forward to? It's an exercise that I want to spend my life thinking about because where I'm going matters to me, where we've come from matters to me, and the world I'm living in today matters to me, and understanding the differences between them has been useful as a thought exercise to me. But one of the things I think about is the second law of thermodynamics, the idea that natural systems are going to naturally gravitate toward their maximum entropy or disorder unless energy is added to the system. Like, Adam, I didn't come here for this. <laughs> and I know, but what I'm trying to say to you is everything's decaying, and it wants to decay, and it spirals towards decay, and it defaults to decay, and the only thing that keeps it from decaying at its maximum rate is adding energy to the system. But I just said to you, that the laws governing the universe say you can't make any more energy. You can't take it away, you can't add it. That the systems that we're bound by, by the natural order of things, have caps on them. There's only so much that we can do in light of the laws of nature. We're talking about a God, a Jesus, who is sustaining all things within some laws that he's written. But I've also just revealed to you that the, those laws naturally dictate that all things will die, that all things will die. What I'm introducing you to is a doctrine that we read in Romans that God himself has subjected his creation to futility. I said to you about that God, that owner, that architect, that builder, who gets to determine, think about the sending of a global flood, he gets to determine, do I want to wipe it out? Do I want to continue its use? Do I want to sustain it? For X number of years, do I want to repurpose it? Do I want to replace it? That that God and his infinite wisdom has determined of his creation to subject it to futility and hope. 
And one of the things that I believe changed at the fall is the introduction of this second law of thermodynamics, that the natural world was subjected to entropy, to decay. We see certain examples of this, like when God speaks that there will, he will put an end cap on man's days, that he will only live so many years. Well, when we try to preserve things, think about the human way of preserving things. Maybe Andrew, for pastor appreciation, gave me a whole bunch of meat because he knows my love language. And I'd like the meat to last long enough for me to eat all of it. And so what do I do with it? I put it in the freezer. And this is like the best that we've come up with so far to slow entropy. I'll make it cold. I'm adding energy. But in the process of refrigeration or, or maybe you've got a box unit in your window in the summer to make the room cold, well, what's coming out the other side of your AC unit? Heat. Because you can't make energy, you can only convert it, and now the waste product is heat, right? And so in that way, when you think about you and I, we try to add energy to the system in order to slow the rate of decay, and one of the ways we do that is by eating, like everything else in the natural world, right? But even so, when you're doing that, what biologists will talk about is that as all of the animals slow their rate of decay by consuming energy, they actually add to the entropy of their environment through their waste. So that the net gain of all things trying to sustain themselves is more death. That all things are moving towards what science, scientists call like a heat death. That left to its own devices, the universe will burn up in a blaze of glory. How's that for a Jesus who sustains all things? The way that Jesus has chosen to sustain all things is to sustain them under the bondage of a subjection to futility. He is determined in his infinite mind to lay waste to the first creation plan, to replace it with a new heaven and a new earth, so that the eternal sustaining has to happen outside of the natural world. We've got to have a replacement happen here, don't we? I've just, I mean, I've barely scratched the surface of this thing, and I don't have the mind really to go any deeper than that, but I'll tell you this. Everything that your eyes are testifying to you is that your best effort, keep it cold. Feed it. Whatever you can think of, the net gain on this world is more decay, more entropy, more death, another day advancing towards the end of all things, unless something were to change. The one who sustains all things is going to have to write into this story that something is, is going to be restored in a manner that we've never seen. When I read about the new heaven and the new earth, there's a story, it's probably allegory, but I think it might be literal. I don't care to debate it. But it says that in the new earth that the tree of life is planted in the middle of a stream of living water, that the, the water flows right through and that we all drink freely of this stream of living water. And that there is no need in the new earth for moon or sun because the glory of the Lord himself will be our light. This earth is sustained by the energy produced by the sun, but the sun is decaying like everything else, and we fear that one day this source of life will be our very death. My hope is that in a new earth where all things are sustained, not by something Jesus has created, 
but by Jesus himself. But for that to be the case, the only people in that place have to be people who are given life in the presence of Jesus, not who die at the sight of the glory of the Lord. And that means he's going to have to deal with sin. That means he's going to have to eradicate sin. The problem of creation number one is sin, and the solution in creation number two is the purging of sin and the replacing of all things with righteousness. And this is done in Jesus alone. When we say that in him all things are holding together, it means that you make sense of the chaos in light of it. It's not happening outside of the hand of Jesus, but it's happening through the hand of Jesus. I was talking to my son Jack about this, and I said, Jack, talk to me about this security, that we're, this peace that we're supposed to have in this idea that Jesus holds all things together. Because I have lived enough life to know that when I hang out with you guys, you are going to say to me, he's not doing a very good job of holding things together. My life is marked by things that are spiraling out of control, whether I'm talking about hurricanes or flood or tornadoes or, or relational discord or hunger or murder or whatever, that sin seems to reign a whole lot of the time. Are we sure that Jesus is really holding all things together? Jack, what's your thought on that? And he said that even that is under the reign and authority of Jesus to be used for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Okay, that's pretty good. I love that I have a man in, as for a son who's living with me and helps to speak these truths to me, but really think through that. What he's saying is that, he's, you know, he brought up Jesus speaking to the wind and the waves when he was talking to me about that. He said, yeah, it's kind of scary to think that God is the one who can send the waves, who sends the storm, who sends the hurricane and all of that. However, if he's got the power to do that, he also has the power to stand up in the boat and to say stop to that same storm, and it has to obey. So if it's comforting to me to think that he doesn't have control over the wind and the waves, to try to get him off the hook as if it's not his fault, well, now I don't get the comfort of knowing that he has the power to stop it, and now I'm waiting for a wave that's finally big enough that Jesus can't overcome it. But what if every wave needs to ask permission from Jesus? Well, that's good news. Even when you can't see what he's doing. You see some of the stability in the planetary orbits and the asteroid belt. You see the way that species cooperate in an ecosystem. You see the way that there's equilibrium in, in chemical reactions, the stability of, of chemical bonds to form molecules and compounds. You see the complex precision of the human body, billions of cells working together to form these organisms, and you see a Jesus who is sustaining all things, and yet within all of this infinite wonder and order, you see decay. And he wrote that decay, he wrote that entropy into creation, subjecting it to futility, that you would get your eyes off of the creation, even in its wonderful order, even in that whole field of study where people like to call it the evidence of intelligent design, right? that you could say, like, listen, my eyes tell me there's an order to this thing, that this thing's being sustained, that there's a precision to this thing, but my eyes also tell me there's something off. There's something not quite right. But that was written in, too, by Jesus. He subjected his perfect creation to futility in order to get your eyes 
on the new earth. And I just wonder how much you want it. I hang out on point number two this morning because if we don't desire the new earth, then we will keep demanding this earth which has been subjected by our Savior to futility to be our home. And as long as we are depending, this, depending on this earth to be our home, we will come against grief upon grief upon grief because he has said this earth cannot be for you what the home that he's preparing for you will be for you. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father to prepare for you an eternal home. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the hope that we find there as we get towards the end of the message. So what's his plans for this earth other than decay? I hope there's more to it than that. Well, that's where point number three comes in, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The success and failure of the church is riding on the head. The life or death of the church is riding on the head. The health and the strength of the church, it's riding on the head. The multiplication of the church is riding on the head. In Genesis, when we hear the first gospel, where the Lord speaks that there will be one who arises from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, that he will bruise his heel, but that the serpent crusher will crush his head. Why is this good news? Well, because a head blow is a death blow right? The head is the head. The head runs the whole thing. You crush the head, you crush the serpent. Well, the head of the church, well, they done tried crushing that head. We did our best with that. We cracked him open. We saw him bleed. We watched him breathe his last. We crucified our head, and what did he do with that but shake it off like death is no thing? What did he do but walk out of the tomb? That's our head. Our head can't be crushed. Our head said, I will build my church. And that's what our head is doing right now. And so the success of this thing simply isn't riding on you. You are, in many parts, are the members of the body. But there is but one head, and that head is the uncrushable Jesus Christ. And his purposes will be fulfilled in creation and in eternity. It is all up to him. Now, this has implications when we think about mercy's door. It has implications when we think about all the churches in the history of mankind. So when we go back and we think about the the church fathers, we think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joseph, and David, and all of the rest, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings of old who died justified by faith, who were ransomed by Jesus when he emptied the graves at at his death. And all those who have come after the fact, starting with the apostles and all of the advancing of the church throughout the ages, leading up to 2023 in Mascuta, Illinois, in a room like this filled with the saints, we're talking about a very capable head. We are talking about a church that is marked by victory, by dead people coming to life across generations until one day, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will ransom for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they will surround his throne in eternity when the law of entropy is removed, and we are sustained by the glory of the Lord, and all the peoples around his throne will look out at once was, and it will further advance their worship of the king for eternity. That's our head. And what are you worrying about? You're not good enough at sharing the gospel? 
Jesus advances his church. Jesus advances his kingdom. And Jesus lives in you. He's the head of the church. The church wins. And the church exists after the sky burns up, after the sea dries up, after this earth is renewed as the new earth descends, the new Jerusalem descends and covers the face of this world and old creation is replaced by the new creation. The church dusts off this part of the story and then lives forevermore in the presence of perfection made like the Son, Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn comes from the Greek prototokos, which means first in order, rank, and esteem, first in claim to the inheritance. We saw this term firstborn already in Colossians 1.15 when we saw Jesus called the firstborn of all creation. Here he's called the firstborn from the dead. In Romans 8.29, we read that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In Hebrews 1.6, we read that when he brings the firstborn into the world, he will say, let all God's angels worship him quoting Psalm 97. In Revelation 1, we read, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The firstborn from the dead. Listen, firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead, first in rank and esteem, first claim to the inheritance that is due. All that is the Father's belongs to the Son, both in creation and in death. He has radically changed how we understand entropy. He has radically changed how we understand decay. He has radically changed how we understand subjection to futility. He's radically changed how we understand the grave itself. Death for the New Testament believer, death who he who is ransomed by Christ is now an entryway into eternal life. Jesus went first into the ranks of a huge army of people who will pass through death into eternal life. The one who shook off the grave has said to you, now you likewise be conformed into my image. You now are one who dusts off the grave. When you close your eyes for the last time in the old creation, you will open your eyes to eternity of glory with your Savior. You will be made perfectly like him. And not in some ethereal way, not in some stream of consciousness, not in some stardust kind of way, not in some strap-on-your-wings angel kind of way. This is a difficult doctrine for some, but I believe that we need to sit in it, that when you die, you're not done groaning. Because until Jesus comes back and brings the new earth that he promised and restores the face of the material world and raises for us our resurrected, glorified bodies, we will be ever aware that he's not done yet. When you, if you were to die today and Jesus had not come back yet, then you will be with him in spirit but absent the body. And you will know, I'm still waiting to worship him with my glorified body because that's the 
that's the end of the promise. The end of the promise is that you would dance and sing and leap and jump with a human body in the presence of your human God, Jesus. You were not made to be separated from your body. You were made to worship him in an eternal, non-decaying body. This is what the promise is, that he will sustain all things in that way, in a glorified state. See, I'm concerned that some of us, we continue to, gr- to grasp at this earth and ask it to be the next one because we are forgetting that in the next one we get a body. That's why I push on this. I think we sometimes think that in this world we get a body and in the next world we're kind of just brains. I didn't make that up. Ask your friends at GC about what they think about, ask them to describe what do you think heaven's like. You're going to hear all kinds of things, and very little of it is going to come from the Bible. We get heaven wrong, and it makes us love earth more, and it makes us not yearn for the new earth. So what I want you to hear me say is you're getting a new body. It's going to be way better than this one, and it's not going to decay, and it's not going to ache, and it's not going to die, and it will be perfect for worshiping your King Jesus forever. You'll shake off the grave, and you will dance in his presence. That's what's coming for you. So forget all of the things that this world has to offer. It pales in comparison to what is already yours, and instead, be the church. Be salt and light for a people who's, who the only world they'll ever know is this one and then hell. Your future is secure. Because your Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That takes me to my final point, which is that Jesus is preeminent in everything. Romans chapter 11, 36, Paul wrote, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Creation is about Jesus. Redemption about Jesus. Subjecting the sinful fallen world to futility, it's about Jesus. Restoration, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that means that nothing for the Christian is meaningless. It means not your suffering. It means not your pain. It means not your trials. It means not your persecution. No, not even loss and death are worthless or meaningless for the Christian, because it's all about Jesus. What do the scriptures tell us? Except that in our suffering, we are made like Christ. We are conformed into the image of Christ's likeness, that by our trials, that the Spirit produces steadfastness for us in the church, that we might run our race by faith alone in Christ, that even in our pain and persecution, that these would be used in the hand of our sovereign author God to scatter the church over the face of the earth. It was through persecution that the gospel reached the ends of the world, that even in death, that this be the last shackle, the last chain broken from sinful creation. Listen, I know that you look out at this world and you've asked it to be all kinds of things and you've wrestled for control and you've said, how can I fight off ultimately God who has subjected this thing to futility and how can I make this place more like heaven? And my answer to you is that you were not ever called to do that. 
that Jesus makes this place not more like heaven. He makes this place the new earth. The trumpet blows, he comes down, and he changes this whole thing forevermore, never to go back. Your your future is secure, so what are you doing? What you were called to do is to go and gather your brothers and sisters along the way, declaring the gospel, knowing that the Lord has selected his people to awaken at the hearing of the gospel and and to respond to that dinner bell and to come to the banquet feast of eternity where Jesus is sitting at the head table. Listen, I don't know how else to say it. All that anxiety that you're carrying, all that lack of peace that you're carrying over your circumstances, all that fear of the future, all of that crying out that that my body is breaking, that your body is breaking, that this person's body is breaking, that the world is not as it ought to be. All I can say to you is, I know. I know. C.S. Lewis said it like this, that if we find within ourselves a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most natural conclusion is that we were made for another world. You were made for the new earth. All those who receive the new birth have been set apart for the new earth. You will not find your satisfaction here. It will not be at the other side of your effort. This is the way of the world, but you were made for the new earth. Remember I was talking to you guys about the nature of trying to fight off decay. You need to add energy to the system or it sprints as fast as it can to decay. But when you add energy and you can't create energy, so when you convert energy and you add energy, well, how do you do that? The scientific and the non-scientific word for it is work. It's work. If you work, you can convert energy and add energy to the system, and you can delay decay, delay decay, delay decay, until ultimately you still die. And this is the way of the world, working and working and working and working, trying to delay one more day the inevitable that this thing has been subjected to futility. And some of us are just joining in in the rat race. Some of us are just working and working and working, trying to delay decay one more day as if we don't know the end. But you do know the end, brother. Sister, you know the end. You can get off of that wheel of work and say, like, my Jesus sustains all things. He sustains me. Death ain't no thing for him, and death is no thing for me. And so we have peace even as we walk out our days on this side of eternity with the eternal hope of our Jesus who sustains all things. He's created you, he's redeemed you, and he will restore you. You can take it to the bank. How do I know? I know because he came once and he said he's coming again. I know because he walked out of the grave. Do we believe it or don't we? My charge for you this morning, you want to hear it, It's like, he's going to tell me, go, go, go. No. My charge is peace, peace, peace. Heavenly peace. In a world that is go, go, going, you get to sleep in heavenly peace because of your head. 
because of the one who is making all things bend to his will, because of the one who will achieve his good purposes in creation and redemption and restoration. Let's trust him together and let's call out on him together in prayer and thank him for all that he has done for his children.